This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Hi, podcast listeners. Starting next month, the Science Podcast will begin hosting ads. Sponsorship by these companies will help keep us afloat. But we want to make sure that what the ads are talking about matches what our listeners want to hear. So please consider taking our survey. It'll ensure that there's an alignment between advertisers and listeners scientifically. To take the quick five-minute survey, go to podsurvey.com slash science dash mag. I just took the survey, actually, and when asked, where do you listen to podcasts, I checked all but one of the boxes. Where are you listening? When you finished answering all of these questions, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Even if you've taken a podcast listener survey before, I'd like to ask you to please take ours and help support the show. Once again, that's podsurvey.com slash science dash mag. Thanks for your help. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 29th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Lauren Cohen talks about battling patent trolls. And Catherine Matisik is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have Catherine Matisik, an editor for our daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on the link between earthquakes and volcanoes. Hmm. Links between volcanic eruptions and earthquakes. If you had to guess... Which would you think causes which? And I guessed before I read the study, and I was thinking, or the story, my guess would be earthquakes cause volcanic eruptions. Am I right? You wouldn't be the first person to think so. (laughs) Charles Darwin wondered if the 1853 eruption of a Chilean volcano that he witnessed wasn't triggered by the devastating 8.2 Concepcion earthquake that happened just one month before. Lots of other examples exist including the massive 1991 eruption of Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines, and even the recent tiny eruption of Japan's Mount Aso following the Kyushu earthquake. But until now, most of our evidence has just been observational. 
And one of the big problems with making this link stronger is that only some volcanoes erupt after earthquakes. So there might be a volcano in the vicinity, but it doesn't actually seem to be affected. They can't figure out how far away things need to be or how close they need to be. And the timing is all over the place. Sometimes it's one month later. Sometimes it's a year later. So what are some of the mechanisms that have been proposed in the past? That's a lot of factors to tie together. So as you imagine, the models have been pretty complicated. Scientists have put forward lots of explanations for a possible link between earthquakes and volcanoes. These include the idea that shock waves from the quakes caused mushy magmas to liquefy into something more likely to erupt. Or even that earthquakes can speed up the growth of bubbles in magma, which can increase pressure in the volcano. But no one had managed to explain why only some volcanoes seem affected by earthquakes, which was your original question. They also couldn't explain why the eruptions were so different, some tiny, some huge, some taking place just days after an earthquake, and some months and months later. And so in the study we're going to talk about today, the researchers built little magma chambers in their lab. And no, there's no magma in there, actually. It's just sugar water, right? But what were they trying to test with these models? They wanted to find out if sloshing, the movement made as the surface of a liquid bounces back and forth, could make a difference in whether and how volcanoes erupted. So sloshing, studying sloshing is a science, which I learned from this story. Sloss. I wish it were called sloth. I can't even say sloshology. Sloshology. <laughs> sloshology. Right. Um, so, so, yes, this is a valid area of study. And as I said, researchers wanted to see if this could make a difference in how volcanoes erupted. So they built a rectangular tank, the magma chamber, and connected it to a shaking table. In place of magma, they used the sugar water that you talked about adding in little bits of plastic to simulate suspended crystals of rock. The researchers conducted a variety of tests and filmed each tank shaking for about 10 seconds under different frequencies and amplitudes with syrup magmas of different viscosities, volumes, crystal contents, and bubble fractions. I was going to say, don't forget the foaminess. Well, that's what I meant by bubbles. Yeah. So a lot of these... Syrups had a layer of bubbly foam on top. There is foamy magma, and that turns out to be really important. What was the end result of all this sloshy experimentation? What role did foam play, and, and does it tell us about the timing and distance between earthquakes and volcanic eruptions? So when the shaking of the table neared the liquid's resonant frequency, this is the frequency at which it's easiest to get an object to vibrate, a large increase in that sloshing occurred. This caused bubbles in the magma to merge together. So the foam started to turn into one giant bubble and essentially collapse on itself. In a real volcano, this escape of hot gases could heat the surrounding rock, increase the magma pressure, and even trigger an eruption. Furthermore, when the foam collapsed, it mixed with underlying thicker liquids. In a real volcano, this kind of mixing would furnish the lower magma layer with extra crystals and tiny little bubbles, providing it with new sites at which more gases could bubble out of the magma. Over time, they say that this could slowly drive up the magma pressures, causing increased volcanic activity and potentially even a delayed eruption. So here you get your explanation 
for the sudden eruptions that we talked about, but also the ones that happen several months after an initial earthquake. Sounds like they're starting to nail down this connection more firmly. Is there going to be a way to confirm it with evidence from future quake eruption combos? That's a good question. From their simulations, the researchers explored the earthquake conditions that would cause real magma to undergo this kind of foam collapse that we talked about. They found that for volcanic vents wider than half a meter, low-frequency seismic waves would be required, which helps explain why only large earthquakes seem to be capable of triggering volcanic activity. For a typical magma in a three-meter-wide volcanic tube, a magnitude 7.5 earthquake could cause sloshing-induced foam collapse from as far away as 100 kilometers. In addition to vents, the team proposes that the large spherical magma chambers found at intermediate depths under volcanoes should also be able to resonate with seismic waves, as long as the denser magma layer fills up to a sufficient level in the reservoir. With all of these facts in hand, they'll be able to confirm some of this with observational details down the road. And next up, we have a story on big change in China. China has seen a lot of change over the past few decades. It's hard to even know where to start. But one big difference is in childhood obesity. What's going on, Catherine? China, like the United States, used to be a nation of fairly thin kids. Few children under the age of 18 were obese or even overweight. But all that started to change in the 1980s. As the Chinese economy opened up, people were richer than they'd ever been before. From 1985 to 2010, average annual incomes climbed more than 10 times. Now, that's just an average, but even poor people had more money to spend on resources that were once scarce. That includes things like education, medical care, and even food. As incomes rose, so did children's waistlines. Across the country, the percentage of overweight and obese kids went from less than 1% in 1985 to 23% in boys and 14% in girls by 2014. Now, a new study shows even more surprising numbers. In rural Shandong province, which is in eastern China, those numbers went from less than 1% for both boys and girls to 30% in boys and more than 20% in girls. Huh. So you mentioned there's a big change in the economy and what people are able to spend. Is that, is that what people are pointing to as the cause for this big jump in obesity rates? That's one of the initial causes. But at the same time people were getting richer, they also had more access to high-energy, high-calorie foods. In the past, a lot of Chinese families were too poor to have meat more than once a month. Now that's not the case. Other food that they started to have access to included packaged foods like instant noodles, but also fare from fast food chains like McDonald's and KFC. If you were a member of the rising middle class, it was a luxury and also a status symbol to take your kids out for Western-style fast food. And since each family could have only one child, many poured their love, money, and food into these little emperors. At the same time, kids were no longer running around the countryside or on the communal farms. They were spending more and more time in school, but also behind computer monitors and television monitors. You especially call out, this is your story, by the way, you especially call out grandparents in this story. Why do they get a special mention? Grandparents play a big role in raising children in Chinese families. 
They help out while parents are working, and in some rural areas, they may completely take over child-rearing duties when parents have to leave the countryside for factory jobs in the cities. And boy, do they love their grandkids. Have you ever heard of something called a depression grandparent, Sarah? Mm, Yes. So basically in the U.S., you have a lot of the older generation who lived during the Depression when they might not have had as much money or food to go around. And these days, those people who grew up in that time shower their kids with food and love. Um, You know, I even know a friend whose grandmother would always tell him to eat more, even when he wasn't hungry. A lot of grandparents in China are the same way. They think that big children are happy children. They think that big children come from rich families. They want to make sure that their grandchildren never have to endure the same privation and, frankly, even starvation that they did back in the 1960s. So an interesting study came out in 2015 that showed that children in China who were raised by their grandparents were actually twice as likely to be overweight or obese. Wow. One thing I also noticed about this study is that it focuses on rural China. Is there a difference between what's happening in the city and the countryside? That's actually a really good question because it is common understanding in development circles that in developed countries like the U.S., you have a difference in terms of obesity rates in cities and in rural areas. In rich countries, you tend to have more obesity in rural areas and less in cities. In developing countries, it's just the opposite. So, for example, in a place like China, a lot of people have said you have more obese kids in the cities and fewer in the countryside. What's interesting about this study is that it focuses specifically on a rural area. And now the samples in this are really at this point too small to draw any firm conclusions. But it's interesting because it might be speaking to a bigger trend that's taking place where you're actually seeing a shift towards a more you know, developed country-like status. Last up, we have a story on turning salty water sweet on the cheap. Freshwater is a limited resource and getting more so every day. Around the world, one billion people don't have access to it. One solution has been desalination plants, basically turning brackish water into drinkable water. But this isn't an option for everyone. Why not? It's not an option for most people around the world because this kind of desalination is expensive. You have to have very large, high-tech plants to turn this brackish water into sweet drinking water, and they emit large amounts of briny waste. Really, at this point, you know, only very wealthy cities and countries can afford to invest in the sort of large-scale plants that can do this. There are these low-tech solutions, including solar-powered stills. The problem is they're not very efficient. The sun evaporates water so slowly that very little fresh water is produced, too little for most people to even bother. Right, and here comes what the new research has to offer. What's the new twist on the desalination game? So we start with something called the golden solution. (laughs) Researchers have found that by floating films on top of salt water that are filled with very tiny particles made out of gold, they're able to concentrate energy from sunlight and evaporate water. Gold is a really good absorber of sunlight, 
And gold nanoparticles can act as energy funnels, concentrating the sun's energy into tiny hot spots that more efficiently evaporate water. But as you know, gold is pretty expensive. So researchers have taken a cheaper metal, aluminum, and made solar absorbers with it. Normally, aluminum is good at absorbing only ultraviolet light, and that's just a small sliver of the overall spectrum. But this new team was able to increase the absorption of aluminum in two steps. First, they took aluminum foil and they perforated it with hundreds and hundreds of tiny holes, each only 300 nanometers across. This prevented light from reflecting off the surface and it scattered it throughout the foil, increasing the odds that the light would be absorbed. Then, the researchers evaporated additional aluminum on top of the foil. The additional aluminum formed a thin layer of atoms, some of which bunched up into the holes that I mentioned to create tiny islands of aluminum that also increased the odds of absorbing sunlight. But the aluminum islands had another effect. Similar to the gold particles, they created energy-funneling hotspots that boosted water evaporations at those sites. So how much did this aluminum foil, very fancy aluminum foil, speed things up? The approach worked so well that researchers were able to purify water three times faster than they had with older methods. Just one square meter of foil was able to generate two to eight liters of water per hour. And when the researchers tested their setup in salt water, the end product was far more pure than standards even set by the World Health Organization and the U.S. EPA. And what about real-world use? Is this an industrial solution to the desalination problem, or is it a more distributed way of doing things? I think the answer to that question is within the question itself. (laughs) Um, The new setup isn't likely to replace industrial filtration techniques anytime soon because those are already efficient on a pretty large scale. They can generate up to 65 liters of water per hour for every square meter of membrane. However, desalinization plants require massive amounts of energy, usually from fossil fuels. That makes them unaffordable for many developing countries and households. So the new technique could offer a way for these less rich countries or even individuals to purify water for their own needs. So it's kind of a neat, as you said, distributive solution to what is a pretty big problem. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Catherine? We have a story on lizard sleeping cycles and another story on how Europe may have exported the Black Death all the way to China. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on staff cuts in Australia's national labs and a story on the NIH's new director of its children's study. So be sure to check it all out on the site. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisik is an editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can see the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Patent suits in the United States are on the rise. 2015 saw the most patent cases ever. Is this because there are more patents, companies are more likely to go to court, or is it a growing business model, also known as patent trolling? I spoke with Lauren Cohen about his analysis of 10 years of U.S. patent litigation and what it says about patent cases and patent trolling. I think the prototypical case of patent trolling is that of 
LumenView Technology, which is a patent troll, versus FindTheBest.com. LumenView Technology sued FindTheBest.com along with about 30 to 50 other small to mid-sized companies for this technology of matchmaking. Now, most of those companies ended up settling, paying some licensing fee to LumenView Technology, but FindTheBest.com fought the patent. And in the case, the judge threw out LumenView Technology's claim saying that the process of matchmaking was literally ancient and that it was mentioned in the Bible. What's really interesting about this case is that we've seen the entire time series of what's happened since then, and it turned out to be not a great financial bet for findthebest.com, even if it got some vindication. So what ended up happening is that LumenView Technology appealed this case, and a panel of three judges months later decided that although the original judge was right, that LumenView Technology couldn't sue for a patent based on matchmaking, that this original judge had overstepped in the amount that they charged. And so it ended up that it cost findthebest.com $250,000. So it cost them $350,000 for the case, and then they got an award of only $100,000. So the net amount was minus $250,000 to win this case against the patent troll. And that just underlies the awful economics that exist in this market for anyone trying to fight patent trolls, or the flip side of that, the great economics in this market from being a patent troll. There's a cost to fight the litigation or there's a settlement cost, and both are intimidatingly large. Yes, and here's what patent trolls are really good at. They're good at understanding exactly what that might cost you and charging you just under that. So we're using the term patent troll, just this company's a patent troll. But what makes an organization a patent troll? A patent troll is broadly defined any entity that owns a patent that opportunistically sues based on this patent, not because of patent infringement, but in order to extract some payment. So let me take one step back. A patent in the United States and globally, it allows you the sole right to commercialize the idea underlying the patent for a fixed length of time. What these patent trolls do is they try to block other people from making money, but not based on the actual idea itself that they had patented, but something they think is close enough that a judge will rule in their favor or that there'll be enough uncertainty that the person will settle. You actually have a graphic in your paper that really just contrasts a company that operates as a troll and a company that operates just to use their patents for what they're needed for or to protect their intellectual property. Right. So there's been a new organizational form that's developed called a non-practicing entity or an NPE. And these are firms, most often just groups of lawyers, that amass patents. And they amass them not to produce any products, like their name suggests, non-practicing entity, non-producing entity, but instead just to sue others for patent infringement. And these NPEs, there's a good reason why they might exist. The proponents of these NPEs say, look, without these NPEs, Apple can just squash any small inventor it wants. They have a much bigger legal team, and they can wait out and spend out these small inventors, and so they'll do that unless someone is in their corner with legal expertise. Every small inventor doesn't have the expertise to do this, but if I can somehow scale that up with these MPEs, that might be a really helpful thing for the economy. Now, of course, the opponents say that these MPEs are instead acting like patent trolls, and our paper finds, on average, very strong evidence that it's the latter, that on average, they're acting like patent trolls. Well, let's get to that in a minute, but I just want to talk about, this sounds bad just because we're using the word troll, uh, but what kinds of negative effects can trolling behavior have? So what we find 
is that firms that are targeted by these MPEs significantly reduce R&D. And in some cases, they go bankrupt because these small ventures simply don't have the means to pay the patent trolls. And even to smaller to medium-sized firms, what it often does is it essentially takes all of their focus and attention away from actually innovating, and that first diverts resources, and second, it diverts talent away from them. And so oftentimes their head scientists will leave to another firm that's not tied up in this litigation. Right. According to your analysis, what's going to increase my chances of being sued by a patent troll? The things that increase your chance of being sued by a patent troll, there are a couple, and they kind of make sense economically. And they're basically the things that will benefit the patent troll in terms of their chances of winning and what they get if they win. The primary driver we find in the paper is cash and recent shocks to your cash balance as a firm. Now, the interesting part about this is that it turns out that it doesn't matter if that cash is related at all to the patent. Hmm. Let's say a patent troll is suing you for a technology patent, but you're a conglomerate firm that has both lumber and technology, right? Two pretty diverse segments. Now, we're able to separate that with this data that we have on publicly traded firms, and it turns out even if you're losing money in technology, so on the thing that they're claiming you're commercializing to steal their money from, but are making money in lumber, they'll sue you for that lumber money. The other things that affect it are the things that will affect your probability of fighting the NPE as opposed to just settling with them. So we find things like having a small legal team increases your chances of getting sued, and having lots of other ongoing litigation in other areas so that you're busy fighting other litigation will also increase the chance you get targeted. Oh, man, I'm in trouble. So um, <laughs> what are the more general trends that you see in your data set uh, around patent litigation? Sure. The main general trend is a stark one, and that is there's a massive increase in patent litigation. And so you can see this clearly in the data we have, but any data that's amassed on this is that patent litigation has just been growing exponentially. And there are some reasons why you might think that makes sense. What's also been happening is that there's been a growth in patents. However, this growth in patent litigation has far outstripped the growth in patent approvals itself, and it's entirely driven by this new organizational form, NPEs. So all of the new patent litigation comes from NPEs. What can be done about this? What is being done about it? You mentioned there's uh, things going up to appeals court, the Supreme Court. Is there legislation, other things that can be done? People are trying to do things. So over 12 bills have been introduced into Congress. None of them have actually panned out into anything that's impacted this. There's been a number of cases, high-profile cases at the Supreme Court that have been ruled upon that people have supposed and lawyers have supposed would slow down patent trolling. And the truth of the matter is they haven't really affected it all that much. And so even after these cases, and so we talked a little bit about Lumenview, these patent trolls have found a way to continue suing and to continue suing in profitable ways and in large quantities. So the one common thread which is tied together all of the actions that have been taken up to this point, both legislative and judicial, to try to fight patent trolling, is that they impose costs on patent trolls after the fact, so after the case has been decided. And the problem with that is that the path to decision can often take many months or even many years and impose a huge amount of upfront costs on whoever the patent troll is suing. So imagine a small firm that doesn't have much available cash that gets sued by one of these patent trolls. Even if they know they're going to win, 
on average, it could take them 18 to 24 months and about $500,000 to fight that case. They don't have $500,000, and in two years, their technology might be obsolete. So instead of doing that, it makes much more economic sense for them to pay a small licensing fee up front to the patent trolls. Or in other words, the patent trolls win. They can go around and just keep collecting these small licensing fees. And that's not the type of innovation landscape that we want to live in. So what we do in this paper is propose a novel advanced screening mechanism that will fight trolling up front. And so what it does is for any patent infringement claim that's put forward, it has to go to this patent board that will review it and give an initial judgment of either meritorious or it can throw it out. Now, this will be a summary judgment such that whoever the patent owner is can still bring litigation, but it will make it much harder to bring litigation along with that upfront fee being borne by the patent holder themselves. And so by the patent troll, if the patent troll wanted to bring a non-meritorious claim against the patents that they hold. Where would this board come from and, and how would it actually be put in place? So we envision this board as being one to three year pilot that we've brought about by legislation and that will take a subset of patents and patent claims and assess whether the existence of the board can help with this patent litigation. But from much of what we've seen from these initial claims, we think there's promising evidence that the board can make a substantive impact on both the number of these meritorious claims that are brought and the follow-on effect to the judicial system in general because now the average claim that's being brought is much more meritorious and deserves and will get much more of court's time. The most important aspect of this advanced screening or this pre-litigation review is that it can separate good NPEs and more generally good patent lawsuits from bad ones. So legitimate infringement claims are going to be encouraged, whereas trolling will be screened out. And I think that's really the key insight from our policy proposal. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks so much for having me. Lauren Cohen and his colleagues write about patent trolls in a policy forum this week. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.